1979, I was fresh out of college and I attended the famous Urbana Missionary Conference at the University of Illinois. There were about 17,000 strong of us. And one of the speakers that year was Billy Graham. Now, it's the only time that I've ever heard Billy Graham speak in person, and as you can imagine, he attracted a lot of media attention. There was one session that was a question and answer session with reporters, and one reporter asked the famous evangelist, what do you think of homosexuality? I'll never forget Billy Graham's response. He said, I preach against all sin. Not to be deterred, the reporter said to him, do you think homosexuality is a sin? And Billy Graham responded, I think John Stott answered that question very clearly yesterday. The day before, Pastor John Stott had preached on Romans chapter 1. Now, Billy Graham was a very astute man. And his answer was brilliant and effective. He affirmed that homosexuality is sin, but it's not the only sin. There are many other sins. Now, I'm reminded of that answer that he gave so many years ago as we come to Genesis chapter 19 in the narrative of the life of Abraham. Because as we come to this chapter this morning, and as we look at the opening first part of the chapter, I've entitled this, The Three Sins of Sodom. And what were the three sins of Sodom that brought such great judgment from God upon them? Well, before we answer that question, let's put chapter 19 into perspective in the Abraham narrative. It is the second longest chapter in the biography of Abraham, 38 verses. The longest chapter is chapter 24, the seeking of a bride for Isaac. That chapter is 67 verses. Now put those two together. Marriage is the longest chapter in the biography of Abraham. Profaning of marriage is the second longest chapter. What this tells us is what God thinks about the sanctity of marriage. What he thinks about the sanctity of sex. This morning I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. And I want to begin by reading the last two verses, verses 12 and 13, of the part of the narrative that we will look at today. And so, if you would, please turn there in God's Word, Genesis 19, and let's notice verses 12 and 13. And here's what the Word of God says. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have brought into the city, you have in the city, bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now, after leaving Abraham in chapter 18, the two angels who had been with the Son of God, the third man in chapter 18, now come down to Sodom. 
This is the third time in two chapters the word outcry has been used. It is found twice in chapter 18, verse 20 and 21. That word refers to an outrage so grievous that anyone who sees it would scream for justice. It is a reference to a blood-curdling scream, a shout, a yell, if you will, for justice. And so as we read this chapter, we are to be stunned that a society could become as wicked as we read here about Sodom. Interestingly, two of the uses of outcry depict God as even being stunned himself at this iniquity. While all other sins offend God, all sins do, going deep in sin offends God even more. We must never forget that. All sin offends God, but going deep in sin offends him even more. Now, what were these sins of Sodom that offended God so greatly that he destroyed the whole area? Well, here's the very first one. Selfish indifference. Selfish indifference. Look back with me at verse 1, if you would, and notice these words from Genesis 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth. And he said, My lords, please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go on your way. They said, No, we will spend the night in the town square. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now when the two angels arrived in Sodom, they found Lot sitting in the city gate. The city gate was the most important place in an ancient town. Court cases were settled there, and because the judges of the town uh, deliberated there, business transactions were made at the city gate. Now, the fact that Lot is there shows that he, though he was a foreigner, had become a very important person in the town. As a nephew of Abraham, who had rescued the town from captivity back in chapter 14, Lot is now somewhat of a local celebrity. Have you ever noticed how celebrities often go deeper in sin than the average person? Have you ever noticed that? Maybe we shouldn't adore celebrities so much. Maybe we ought not to give them all the attention they get. There is something about wealth and fame that opens us to the depths of sin if we are not careful. Now what is alarming and foreboding about these opening verses is that Lot was the only one to welcome these men. 
I don't need to tell you that hospitality in the ancient Near East was considered the sacred duty to traveling strangers. When you arrived in a town like Sodom, there was nobody there with a degree in hospitality management who was ready to welcome you to a five-star hotel. And so the townspeople had to do that. To breach Middle Eastern hospitality, as we read here, was the height of callous indifference. Now why is it that Lot had to press these men strongly? They wanted to say in the city square, but he pressed them strongly. That verb is translated again in verse 9, pressed hard against. It means to manhandle. He did some major arm twisting to get them to stay with him that evening. Why? Lot knew what the streets of Sodom were like at night. He knew that no one who was not behind a thick wooden door with triple bolt locks was safe and had a chance. Now what ought to strike us here this morning in this chapter is that no one else that cared for the welfare of these men demonstrates shocking, shocking indifference. And isn't that where all sin begins? Doesn't sin start right here? With selfish unconcern for the well-being of others. Whenever you find a society where everyone is demanding their rights, regardless of its effect upon others, there you will find a society that is sunk deep in sin. There was an English author whose name rings a bell to us. His name was John Stuart Mill. And Mill was not a Christian, but when he uttered this famous statement, he hit it right on the head. Look what he said. He said, bad men need nothing more to compass their ends than that good men should look on and do nothing. And obviously we know, when people look on and do nothing, they're not really good, are they? They're not really good. And when any society becomes complacent to the corruption of evil in their midst, that society will sink low. And let's think for just a moment here this morning about the church. Let's think about the church. We should be a forgiving place. For we are all sinners and every single one of us needs forgiveness. And so as people come through the doors of our church or any church, what they ought to find is regardless of the sin they are struggling with, that they are met with love, with grace, with mercy and the extent of forgiveness. I need that. You need that. Everyone needs that. But no church should ever become complacent about the corruption of sin in their midst. 
When we become indifferent to the evil of wrongdoing, we will sink low indeed. Because this is where sin always begins, with self-centered indifference. This is why God judged Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's notice the second reason why he judged them. Number two, the second sin they were guilty of was sexual perversion. Sexual perversion. Look with me at verse 4 and verse 5 and notice how the narrative continues. But before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them. Now this is the first place in the Bible where we meet the issue of homosexuality. To know in this context is a reference to sexual intercourse. And it is from this very incident that we get the word sodomy for homosexual relations. And I want you to notice here how these verses paint a picture of a society holy given over to sodomy. Verse 4 says, both young and old, all the people to the last man. This tells us that homosexuality had become an accepted practice. Both young and old shows that it was accepted it was promoted, and it was approved. And then notice the same verse says, the men of the city, the men of Sodom. Usually in our cities, the baser sins are localized in certain parts of the city. Rush Street in Chicago. Bourbon Street in New Orleans. The Strip in Las Vegas. But coming from everywhere in the city shows a city wholly enmeshed in illicit sex. Now some have rationalized that the sin here is not homosexuality, but gang rape. So they say the problem was not their sexual orientation, but their gang violence. But there's a serious problem with that view of this passage. The Old Testament clearly condemns homosexuality right along with incest and bestiality. In fact, there are two passages that put all three of those sins right alongside each other, and those passages call all three of those sins abominations and depravity. And then the New Testament clearly condemns the rampant sodomy in ancient Greece and Rome. Pastor D. James Kennedy had a very, very influential ministry in South Florida. And one day on his radio program, this is what he said. He said, the Bible is so clear that if homosexuality is not wrong, nothing is wrong. And Pastor Kennedy was right. Now I want to speak for just a moment to people here today 
who may very possibly be struggling with homosexual temptation. The church is not a collection of sinless people. We are all sinners saved by grace. And we need to understand all of the temptations that exist outside of the church. We deal with those same temptations as believers inside the church. That is very, very clear. And I have never struggled with this particular sin of homosexuality, but I have struggled with the power of other sins. No question about it. There is a Christian teaching that is so important for us sometimes to remember and to understand. It is known as the doctrine of besetting sin. And what that means is this, some sins have a more powerful allure on us than other sins do. And we are all liable to besetting sins, sins that influence us more powerfully than other sins. If you were to say to me, Pastor Brian, do you have some sins that are a greater temptation to you than other sins? My answer would be absolutely yes. Think of the sins we struggle with. Gossip. Drunkenness. Lust. Wrath. Self-pity. Judgmentalism. What those sins all show us is this. We all need a Savior. We all need a Savior. Look at what the New Testament says to us. This is the uniform teaching of all Scripture. Look at 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. If we will come to the Lord Jesus, this is what God promises us. And there are sinners all across our church this morning who can testify that Jesus has washed them, has sanctified them, and has justified them. And it is far better, far better to fight and struggle against sin with Jesus as your Lord and Savior now than to pay for sin for all eternity. And this is what I would say to everyone if you want to come and fight and struggle against sin with us, we will fight and struggle right alongside of you.
Many years ago, a friend of mine sat in a booth at a restaurant with me and shared his burden with me about his homosexual past. We had grown up together and then had separated from one another. He had gotten involved in homosexuality. And now here he was sharing his burden with me. And he said the most difficult thing as he came out of that life was to believe that God could forgive him for what he had done. And what a joy for me to sit across the booth with him and talk about a Savior who washes, who sanctifies, and who justifies. And that's what he will do for you if you will come to him. But this morning, there's a third sin you do not want to be guilty of. And that third sin in this passage is stubborn unrepentance. Stubborn unrepentance. You see, no matter our background, no matter our sins, if we continue in stubborn unrepentance, there is no remedy for that. Look with me in your Bibles at verse 6 and notice what the passage says. Lot went out to the men at the entrance, shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not act so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they have come under the shelter of my roof. But they said, stand back. And they said, this fellow came to sojourn, and he has become the judge. Now we will deal worse with you than with them. Then they pressed hard against the man Lot and drew near to break the door down. But the men reached out their hands and brought Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And they struck with blindness the men who were at the entrance of the house, both small and great, so that they wore themselves out groping for the door. Then the verses we read here earlier, then the men said to Lot, Have you anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons, daughters, or anyone you have in the city? Bring them out of the place, for we are about to destroy this place, because the outcry against its people has become great before the Lord, and the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Four times, these wicked men were reproved for their sins. Count those four times with me. Verse 7, do not act so wickedly. Verse 9, he has become the judge. Verse 11, they were struck with blindness. In the Bible, somebody being struck with blindness was symbolic of God's disapproval. And then verse 13, the Lord has sent us to destroy this city. Four times, the warning rejected every time. 
I'm sure as you noticed as we opened this chapter, that there were three men who went to Abraham to announce the blessing of a miracle child that would be coming in about nine months. Two, as we have seen, were angels. One was the pre-incarnate Son of God. But now as we come to chapter 19, there are only two men that come, the two angels, and the pre-incarnate Son of God, who we know as the Lord Jesus Christ, did not go to Sodom. And we have to ask immediately, why did only two men go to Sodom? Why not the third one, the Son of God? And the answer is clear, isn't it? He was not welcome. He was not welcome. Sodom was so steeped in sin that their rejection of the Son of God was complete. And the Bible teaches in so many different places you can become so hardened in your sin that Jesus passes you by as he comes to others. Never forget that in our lives. It is so possible to become so hardened in sin that the Bible says our conscience becomes seared. And a seared conscience is like a callus on your hand that has become so hardened that if you prick it with a pin, you feel no sensation, there's no sense of pain. And a person can become so hardened in their sin that they become insensitive to the very voice of God and Jesus, who knows when a person has passed that line, passes them by as he comes to others. Fanny Crosby wrote these very, very striking words. Look what she wrote. Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Hear my humble cry, while on others thou art calling, do not pass me by. And that's what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah. The Son of God who came to Abraham and Sarah passed them by. Do not let that happen to you. Do not let that happen to you. As Jesus is here today by his Spirit, speaking to your heart, speaking to your soul, whatever the sin may be, let that still small voice of the Spirit of God prick your conscience, help you to see your need. And come to the Lord Jesus while he is here, offering you his grace. Let's bow together, shall we, and, and close our eyes.
as her heads are bowed and her eyes are closed. This morning, the grace of God, the love of Jesus, the compassion of a merciful Lord is extended to you. And maybe you have never confronted the sins in your life as you need to, to see not only the depth of your need, but to see how only a merciful God is your answer. And the promise of the word of God is true. That such were some of you. But you can be washed. You can be justified. You can be sanctified. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the spirit of our God. And this morning, let the words of Scripture speak to your heart. See the plainness of what the Bible says about your condition. And then see the wonderful offer of forgiveness, full and free. You are surrounded by beggars who have found bread in the Lord Jesus Christ, the living bread. And they are here because as they feed upon him, he is the answer to their souls. And we are simply beggars inviting you as another beggar to come and find bread, the bread of life in Jesus. And so this morning as we close And we sing about Jesus passing by and Jesus offering his grace, love, and mercy. Respond to him. And if you have questions about anything that you have heard this morning, we are here to answer those questions the best that we can and to help you to come to know the living God. Whom to know is life indeed. Lord Jesus, we love you this morning, but we know it is because you have first loved us. You are the one who loved us, and you gave yourself for us. For your sake we pray. Amen.